Call from mom. Answer it. Call silenced. Instacart knows nothing gets between you and the game. That's why they make ordering from your couch easy. Stock up today and get all your groceries for the week delivered in as fast as 30 minutes without missing a minute of the game. You have 47 new voicemails. Download the app to get free delivery on your first three orders while supplies last. Minimum $10 per order. Additional terms apply. Welcome to KCBS In-Depth, a discussion of one of the topics making news this week. This is KCBS In-Depth. There's been no shortage of weird whale news in Northern California over the last several months. This past week or so, the news has had mostly a lighthearted bent to it. Residents caught unusual sights of both humpback and killer whales frolicking in the San Francisco Bay along with the Monterey Bay and snapped some pretty great photos along the way. More ominously though, gray whales have been washing up dead along the California coastline in alarming numbers this year. And with all this unusual whale behavior, many are now wondering what exactly is going on down there underneath the waves. I'm Keith Menconi. This is In-Depth. And today on the program, we're going to be speaking with two people deeply involved in the effort to find some answers to that question. First, uh, we're going to invite onto the program Bill Keener. He is a research associate with the Marine Mammal Center in Sausalito. So welcome, Bill Keener. Thank you. Thank you, Keith. And joining us by phone, we have on the line David Weller. He's a research wildlife biologist with the National Oceanic and Atmospheric Administration's Southwest Fisheries Science Center in La Jolla. David Weller, thanks so much for being here. Hi, Keith. All right, so let's uh, start with you, David. If you could just get us up to date. Uh, we're talking about dozens of gray whale deaths all up and down uh, the California coast this year. Give us uh, the numbers and uh, a sense of what that's looked like. Okay, yeah, the uh, unusual mortality event, as we're calling this, uh, is, has about 37 uh, dead stranded gray whales uh, coming ashore in California. And the total is about 77 if you include Alaska, Washington, and Oregon. In San Francisco Bay itself, it's a little bit more unusual to see gray whales. But in this case, I think some of these whales are hungry. Uh, they're malnourished, and they're stopping off looking for a snack before they get all the way up to their Arctic feeding grounds. Actually, let's linger on that point for a second. So tell us a little bit. It is unusual to see these gray whales in the Bay Area, as or in the Bay, as you just mentioned. What is the more typical migratory pattern that we would see for these whales this time of year? Uh, the migratory pattern this time of year begins uh, about February, and the, the whales are leaving the lagoons in Mexico and northern Baja, California, and they make their way up to the Arctic feeding grounds uh, in the Bering Sea and the Chukchi Sea. They arrive there about the end of May, and occasionally they'll poke their heads into San Diego Bay and L.A. Harbor and San Francisco Bay and other areas. But this year seems like they're actually investigating areas that they might find some food uh, before they reach the, the feeding grounds. All right. And so in a moment, we're going to dig into what some of the causes might be for those aberrations in behavior. But let's look at a couple of different whale species that have been exhibiting some interesting behavior and uh, turn over now uh, to uh, Bill Keener. Bill, so you're much more close to what's happening in the Bay Area, everything that's happening in this whole region. Over the last couple of weeks, we've had a, a couple of great photographs of some whales that have been cresting in, in the region. We had a humpback whale, some, uh, some killer whales as well, a bit, little bit further south. What should we interpret 
those behaviors as? Well, uh, the humpback whale that was in Alameda for about 19 days uh, has now uh, l apparently left the bay. At least it's no longer in Alameda. And so we presume that it's gone back out into the ocean. And it was skinny. It mm. didn't have its normal fat blubber layer that we expect. The uh, migratory pattern of humpback whales is very different than gray whales. Mm -hmm. So they come uh, up from the Mexican breeding calving grounds to feed in California, and they're off our coast every year. And since 2016, they've been coming into the bay in good numbers to feed on anchovy. Now this one, uh, which has been nicknamed Alley by the locals in Alameda, um, was coming in and just resting, circling mostly, but then getting more active later and starting to breach, and that's where some of those great photos came from mm -hmm. as the uh, humpback whale got more active and then uh, now has has departed. So it, mm -hmm. it was certainly a thrill for a lot of people to be able to see a humpback whale from shore, you know, 100 feet away. How do you feel when uh, these na uh, whales pick up nicknames? Is that uh, cute for you, or, or is that not taking the science seriously enough? How do you feel no, about that? No, no. I mean, we have a catalog, a photo ID catalog. So each humpback whale has an individual um, pattern on the underside of its flukes, and we use that to compare photographs. For instance, we know that um, 71 different whales have been in San Francisco Bay, um, and some of them we've matched all the way down to their Mexican breeding grounds. Now, some of them that a repeat customer say we recognize from 2016, 17, 18, even 2019, um, we give names to as well as the numbers because it's just easier to remember sometime. All right, so let's dig into uh, what we know so far about what's behind some of the gray whales uh, deaths. Uh, as uh, Dave, you mentioned a second ago, NOAA Fisheries has declared an unusual mortality event this year. Uh, it's did a similar thing back in 2000. Uh, now it's doing it again, now that we've seen all the whale deaths this year. And that's going to, I suppose, expedite some of the research looking into what might be behind uh, all of these uh, gray whale deaths. I guess a two-part question. Let's start with what is this research going to look like? And then tell me a little bit about what we know so far. Yeah, so the research is really two parts, and the most immediate part is gaining access to the stranded whales, and that's getting a, a crew or a staff of veterinarians or volunteers or researchers to the carcass to collect samples, and that is to examine the whale in detail. We call that a necropsy, and collect blubber samples and tissue samples that may help us to understand something about the condition of those whales. We could look for viruses and disease. We could look for lipid content in the blubber and just try and get a handle on what is happening to the whales that have died. The second part of the research question is, as time goes on, will this have a population consequence? Will we actually see a downturn in calf production or in total abundance of the population? So really, it's a two-part a two question. Yeah. And so then it sounds like we're talking about relatively skinny whales, relatively uh, not terribly well-nourished whales. Is that the first thing that you're going to be looking at in terms of the cause of all this? Uh, in part, yes. I mean, that is that is something that is visually observable for many of these whales. Not all of them are skinny. And I should say that whales, uh, gray whales at this time of the year are normally relatively skinny. They haven't fed in, in four or five months. Um, but what we're most worried about in the whales that do come ashore are actually emaciated. And so they're in terrible condition, and that usually results in, in death. So what we know about them at this point is that some of them are malnourished. Uh, they're showing up in areas areas that we sometimes normally don't see them. 
uh, and we need to get down to the, a deeper level to understand what has happened to them physiologically. Just want to clue listeners who might just be joining us in. If you're just joining us, you're listening to KCBS In-Depth, our weekly deep dive into some of the biggest news shaping your life in the Bay Area. Today on the program, we're considering what might be behind the troublingly high number of gray whale deaths along the West Coast so far this year. Joining us today is uh, Bill Keener. He's a research associate at the Marine Mammal Center, along with Dave Weller. He's a research wildlife biologist with the National Oceanic and Atmospheric Administrations. Uh, Just uh, one more question before we turn things over to Bill. Uh, David, if you could tell us, a lot of people when they hear this, I mean, I think the first place that their mind goes is the plastic in the water. We have those very troubling, uh, very graphic images of marine life that are in you know, a bad way with plastic in their stomach or plastic somewhere else. Uh, and uh, I think a lot of people might wonder, could that be contributing to some of these deaths? Uh, We can't rule it out, and we'll learn more about that by looking at stomach content from these animals that have died. But uh, a more likely explanation is something to do with the food base itself, and that some of these animals simply didn't feed well uh, last feeding season, and they've just uh, kind of run out. Their gas tank has hit the low point, and they've run out of energy in order to make it back. And could warming waters uh, play a role in that at all? Yeah, certainly the Arctic is a changing environment. The sea ice there has changed dramatically. There have been these warm water incursions, the warm water blob, for example. And all of those changes in the environment may have trickle-down effects on amphipod prey base that the gray whales feed on. And so certainly we're trying to look at that by using remotely sensed data and then combining that with our estimates of abundance and calf production. All right. Uh, Bill Keener, tell us a little bit. I know that the Marine Mammal Center is going to be involved in the necropsies or has already uh, taken part in some of the necropsies. Tell us a little bit about that work. Yeah, already um, there have been, you know, several gray whales come into San Francisco Bay. Uh, several have uh, died. And so we've already responded to 13 gray whales in our area, in the San Francisco Bay area this uh, spring. And uh, 12 of those have had a necropsies done, that is postmortem examination. And you go through their their blubber layers, you go through their entire digestive tract to see what's in there. And so of those uh, dozen, um, there have been, uh, most of them have had malnutrition. So that's really the, the thin blubber layer that Dave was talking about. They just didn't get enough food. Hmm. But in addition, five of those 12 were hit by ship. Hmm. So there was this trauma um, where they were struck by uh, a ship and uh, died suddenly. Now, a couple, some of those also had malnutrition, but some were not. They were healthy. They had, uh, you know, good fat layer. So what happens is if, you know, whales pause and stay in, in an area for a long period of time, um, they're more subject to, um, you know, being in the path of a boat or ship. And that sort of thing can happen. So that's something that we have to uh, keep in mind, that not every gray whale along our coast is dying of malnutrition. There's other issues that they face, other risks. There could be entanglement, ship strike as well. Uh, But there could be uh, a linkage between those two in the sense that if the whales are hungrier, they might be going into more uh, heavily trafficked, boat-trafficked waters. Right. So what happens normally, in a normal year, we might see um, one or two gray whales come into San Francisco Bay, uh, spend a day or so, and 
keep moving north along their migration path in the spring. Uh, but this year we saw many staying, and this was the first year that we've been able to go out and take photographs of gray whales and identify individuals in the bay and see how long they've been here, and one individual stayed for five weeks. Hmm. So that's very unusual. And that's putting that whale at a lot of extra risk? Right. Yeah. Now, it's kind of interesting. I, I actually attended an awards ceremony, I think maybe six or seven months back, where uh, some association for maritime shipping was patting themselves on the back for reducing the rates of shipping, slowing the speed down. To hear them tell it, they've had a lot of success getting uh, shipping companies to cooperate in slowing down those ships. And the goal is to reduce some of these collisions. Uh, tell our listeners about why slowing down the ships might help and how effective that's been. Yeah, well, I can I can take a, a start at that one. Um, so, yeah, that's a great program that was put forward by the a local uh, National Marine Sanctuary, the Greater Fairlands National Marine Sanctuary. And it's called a voluntary speed reduction, mm. in which they ask the shipping companies to slow the ships coming into uh, the area uh, offshore to slow to 10 knots or less. And a lot of the shipping companies have been doing that. And that was the awards, uh, you know, the recognition they've been uh, uh properly given. However, um, the area off San Francisco, including all the way into the gate and a few miles out, is not part of the National Marine Sanctuary. Hmm. There's what's called an exclusion zone. Uh, the, the San Francisco was never in the Marine Sanctuary starting from the 80, 1980s when they first established it. And so um, the ships don't have that same voluntary speed reduction uh, in place there. So that's one of the things we're trying to do is to look at how close, uh, say, humpback whales and ships are getting right in the very narrowest area, right under the Golden Gate Bridge, which is only one mile wide, and uh, be able to have good sound science for policymakers to be able to, you know, make recommendations, make wise conservation choices uh, when regulating, say, or, or asking the shipping industry um, to slow down and be vigilant. And that's actually, on that historical note, I think that's a good point to turn things back over to David Weller with the uh, with NOAA's Southwest Fisheries Science Center. Walk us through the history of whale populations. So this was, whales in general, they were really having a hard time 100 years or so ago when uh, whaling was still up in force. Walk us through that history a little bit. Yeah, so the the real culprit there with <clears throat> the decline in many whale populations was commercial whaling. And if you were to look worldwide in both the southern and the northern hemisphere in the period between 1900 and 1999, about a 100-year period, there were about 3 million whales that were taken by whalers. And some of those populations have recovered. Gray whales, for example, are doing quite well here in the eastern North Pacific. Uh, humpback whales, as Bill just mentioned, are rebounding and coming back. But other populations really remain quite depleted and quite low in number. And, and one of those striking examples is the eastern North Pacific right whale, which is kind of centered in the Gulf of Alaska and north of the Aleutians. And we think that the population may number around 30 individuals in total. So on the brink of extinction. And I've heard it suggested that perhaps part of the story here as to why the whales are having a hard time finding food sources is because the populations have rebounded so successfully they're depleting those food sources? Yeah, so uh, an ecological principle is called carrying capacity. And the carrying capacity is defined as how many whales can the environment uh, sustain? 
So in the case of gray whales, they were knocked back to several thousand, probably at some point in time. And they've recovered now to about the largest population that we know of, that's 27,000, that's the abundance. And so can the Arctic feeding areas, which most of these whales go to, to summer and to get fat, uh, can the habitat there sustain 27,000 whales? So some of them may be dying. The answer may be no this year, but the answer may be yes next year. So we really don't know what carrying capacity is. It's not a hard ceiling per se, but it's something that fluctuates. And in any year or certain suite of years, it may be able to accommodate more whales than in other years. Now, if we go back to 2000, we had a, a similar situation with uh, many whale uh, dead whales discovered along the West Coast. My understanding, though, is that even after heavy research into what might have been behind that, we're, we're still not really clear on what perhaps caused that. Uh, so is, is there a chance that this time around, once again, even after a, a whole lot of research, we, we might not get too far in figuring out what's going on? Uh, it, it is possible that that die-off in 1999-2000 uh, resulted in what's estimated to be about a decline of maybe 6,000 whales. It's not all of those washed ashore, but when you do the statistical modeling of how many whales washed ashore and how many were likely to have died, it turns out to be about 6,000 or so. We didn't learn a lot about specifically what the cause may have been during that event. Part of the reason is that we didn't access as many of the carcasses as we would have liked to. This year, we're putting a lot more effort into deploying teams to get information from those. So we're hoping to gain more samples. But also the technology, I mean, anything with uh, in bioassays, the time from 99, 2000 to now, it's just light years ahead now. So we're able to do uh, a far more investigative work than we were in the past. And then I should just add the, the caveat that despite that 99-2000 dieback of about 6,000 animals or so, what we have been able to do with our research is to follow the population over time and learn that they've rebounded to not only where they were prior to that earlier die-off, but they've exceeded that level. So they're now you know, at the highest abundance that we have in time. So they're resilient. They're able to recover from this type of event. Uh, what we're most curious about is to whether it's a short-term event or if it's something that's going to be part of the new normal that carries on year after year after year. And that's that's one thing that we really want to be able to track. Once again, reminding our listeners that they're listening to KCBS In-Depth. That is our weekly deep dive into some of the biggest news shaping your life in the Bay Area. Today, once again, we're discussing the troubling spate of gray whale deaths along the West Coast. Joining us to help us out in uh, understanding that is Bill Keener, a research associate with the Marine Mammal Center in Sausalito, and David Weller, research wildlife biologist with the National Oceanic and Atmospheric Administration's Southwest Fisheries Science Center. Uh, David Weller, uh, just one last note on the overall uh, population level. So is it, even even if the gray whales are having a tough year, is that necessarily a, a sign that this is a species that's going to be in serious trouble? Or, or is, you know, can you have a bad year every now and then and bounce back? Yes. What we've learned by monitoring the population since the 60s is that gray whales and most large whales can bounce back. Uh, so they can have a bad year or even a number of bad years or even, uh, you know, decades of bad years due to things in the past like commercial whaling. 
And given the proper protections, and if all things stay the same with the habitat and the environment, they're very resilient and they can come back from this type of event. All right. Let's take a step back from the specifics of this year and maybe consider just the broader trends in terms of how the ocean is doing, how uh, the ecological systems that we're looking at are doing. Because I think when a lot of us hear about uh, an animal is having a rough time or there's some kind of weird behavior that we're seeing out there, it's that canary in the coal mine moment. It's a sign that there might be some deeper issues lurking uh, out there. So, Bill, I mean, share your thoughts a little bit. What does it tell you when gray whales are having a tough time? Is it, does that signal to you maybe we should be looking for some deeper issues out in the ecology of the ocean? Well, yeah, I think we are. I mean, I think that's one of one of the things that uh, certainly we do at the Marine Mammal Center, and it's not just gray whales. We're looking at, say, California sea lions, which are now coming into the Marine Mammal Center in uh, very significant numbers over the last just couple of weeks with uh, this uh, problem called domoic acid poisoning, which is from a harmful algal bloom. So that's another change in the ocean um, that's, you know, a really a negative where we're seeing more uh, harmful algal blooms with this uh, toxin that gets into the fish and then goes up into the food chain. So that is uh, something that, you know, we're really concerned about. And um, looking at uh, marine mammals, even uh, whether it's pinnipeds like seals and sea lions or uh, whales and dolphins and porpoises as sentinels uh, to be able to show you what's going on in the ocean is is really vital. And that's one of the things. So that's why we're spending so much time at the Marine Mammal Center looking at and doing these necropsies and trying to figure out the cause of death for every one of these animals. Uh, so, uh, David Weller, turning things back to you, I mean, what does this all say to you about the health of the oceans? I think a lot of us are just, this for me at least has been a year where a lot of really troubling, striking images from uh, the ocean world have been turning up in the news. I mean, I'm, I'm sure this is the stuff that you live and breathe just due to your profession, so I'm, I'm sure none of this is new to you, but just all the, the plastic, the particulate matter out there, the many uh, different kinds of pollution that are making its way out there, you know, the, the picture is, I think, crystallizing for a lot of the general public that uh, there is a lot of trouble out there what how how does this uh, whale situation fit into that broader picture well it's it's kind of a two part um, concern and one is the very thing that you said is what kind of human activities are impacting the whales and we know that things like plastics uh, pollution, emerging contaminants, uh, interactions with fisheries, entanglements in fishing, fishing nets is a serious problem for many populations. And then we've also got things like ship strikes. So those are all you know, directly human-related activities that are impacting uh, whale populations. And then we've got environmental changes that are happening, uh, such as uh, changes in sea ice in the Arctic and uh, warming, uh, ocean water temperature warming, and trickle-down effects that start to affect primary production and then food base for many animals. So in the Arctic, for example, there are some animals that depend on the ice edge, and if the ice were to recede further or disappear, those species are the first ones that are really going to be in trouble. Animals like gray whales may actually benefit from it in the short term in that it opens up new habitat, but we don't know what the long-term consequences might be. And I guess just, you know, we, we, you both were alluding to what is the human role in all this, and I think just to do a public service for our listeners, so often when we hear these uh, stories about the natural world, it's 
I, at least for me, my gut reaction is just, you know, that sounds terrible, but it just seems like such a big problem to get your head around. What can I as one individual do? So, uh, Bill, what are your thoughts on what should the average news consumer be taking away from uh, a report like this? How can we actually use this information uh, or, or to change how we think about stuff or maybe even change how, how we operate in the world? Well, yeah, that's a real good question, uh, Keith. And, and I think that one thing for people to keep in mind is that when they see a story about uh, something happening in the ocean, a uh, species, is that every species is really different. Their stories are different. And what's happening to gray whales is not necessarily happening to other species, like humpback whales. So that's the first thing to keep in mind, that, that they're all different. And you can't just sort of lump everything as sea creatures out there in, in the ocean. And, um, you know, it, and they have to take science into account. So I think, uh, actually, the, the, the public is, can handle a lot more science. I wish they were given more. Hmm. Uh, in other words, you know, that's partly something that, that we all deal with, uh, you know, Dave and, and I and uh, members of the media, such as yourself, you know, is how much of the story, how much details do you give out, uh, do, can you collect and uh, effectively deliver? But mm -hmm. I think there could be a lot more delivered, uh, and, and I think people can handle it, you, you know, trying to understand the difference between, just like we talked here about humpbacks and gray whales and their different migratory patterns and, um, you know, different uh, risks that they're facing, because uh, the, the risk of ship strike is one thing, entanglement is another one, uh, harmful algal blooms, which could have uh, a, a human-related cause from agricultural runoff into the oceans, uh, you know, they they're all need to be dealt with. But it does take a little bit of time to, to dig into them and give it, uh, you know, the, the time that's due. And uh, David Weller, any thoughts you want to add to that point? Well, I, you know, I think... Um Running uh, uh, shows exactly like yours, Keith, is uh, is really helpful in making the public aware of the issues, and then they become educated uh, due to that. So I think part of our role as scientists, is, as Bill said, is the public outreach and the awareness and making people uh, understand the science in a way that they can uh, appreciate and that they feel like they can do something about. So I think it really is, is a big a responsibility for science also to take on the role of outreach and education. All right. And before we round things out, uh, just going to toss things one last time to uh, Bill Keener. You know, before we turned on these microphones, you extended a very generous uh, invitation to me to go to the Marine Mammal Center in Sausalito. I imagine that invitation is also extended to our, our listeners as well to go check it out. You also alluded to the fact that there is uh, occasionally good news that happens in uh, the marine world as well. So maybe just uh, tell us a little bit about what's going on in the Marine Mammal Center these days and any other general marine news you think folks should be keyed into. Yeah, well, I think in our our own backyard, which is San Francisco Bay, there's been a lot of amazing changes. I mean, I remember uh, in the 50s when I was a kid coming across the Bay Bridge, it would stink like a cesspool because there was sewage and industrial discharges running unchecked into San Francisco Bay. That's all changed with the laws uh, and uh, tightening up of the environmental regulations in the decades since then. As a result, we've got uh, fish populations in San Francisco Bay that are now attracting animals. So in 2008, we saw harbor porpoises coming back for the first time after 65 years absence. Bottlenose dolphins are here. Uh, they're moving up from Southern California. We've got humpback whales coming into feed. So. Uh, 
to me, that seeing that change in my lifetime is, is really amazing. And people can go out and see it for themselves. They can go out onto the Golden Gate Bridge at high tide and see these animals. If anything else was proved in the last couple of weeks, you can indeed see this for yourself. If, if nothing else, the photographic evidence of the last couple of weeks definitely proves that. All right, we're going to have to let that be the closing point for this show. Once again, this has been KCBS In-Depth. And we have been speaking to uh, Bill Keener, Research Associate at the Marine Mammal Center in Sausalito. Bill Keener, thanks so much for being here. Thank you, Keith. Also, we had on the line David Weller. He's a research wildlife biologist with NOAA's Southwest Fishery Science Center in La Jolla. David Weller, thank you as well. Sure, my pleasure. Thanks for your interest. You've been listening to KCBS In-Depth. Remember, you can find past episodes of the program online at kcbsradio.com or wherever you get your podcasts. If you're listening through iTunes, please leave a rating and review while you're there to help other people discover the program. For KCBS and In-Depth, I'm Keith Manconi, and I'll see you next time. You've just heard KCBS In-Depth, a news interview program for All News 740 and FM 106.9 KCBS. Baseball is in full swing. NBA playoffs are heating up. And your NFL team is gearing up for training camp. Listen to the latest on the teams you love here on the Odyssey app. The biggest sports radio stations in the country providing unrivaled local coverage of their teams all in one place. Exclusive interviews with players, coaches, and team executives streaming live and always available on demand. Stay in the know with your favorite teams right here on the Odyssey app. 